Morning. How are y'all doing? Good. You can talk back here. You're allowed to do that. It's good to be with you guys. Um, so welcome. Very, very glad that you're here. If this is your first time here, thank you for being here this morning. Really, really glad that you're here. Um, we, we hope that this morning you feel welcome and, and that you have a, you've experienced a warm welcome from us and uh, and that you hear the gospel of Jesus preached and communicated clearly this morning. That's, that's our hope uh, every single Sunday, and that the Lord just extends his gracious hand to you through that. Um, if you would, we have a little connect card attached to the bulletin that you received when you walked in this morning. And uh, if you would, just fill that out. That is a, a little card that you can put information about yourself and, and request more information about Veritas. Uh, and, and we'd love to be able to connect with you this week uh, through that means. And, and also on that Connect card, there's a prayer request, uh, a little area to, to put in a prayer request. If you would fill that out, and, and we'd just love to, to be able to pray for you this week. We'd kind of an honor and a joy to be able to do that. And so if you want to fill that out, and, and you can turn it uh, into either a leader here, or you can turn it um, into that black box on the welcome table or in, this, uh, in one of these little buckets here. Uh, and that would just be a good way for, for uh, us to be able to get to know you and, and connect with you. We'd love to do that. Um, now, giving. Uh, we haven't talked much about giving uh, at, at Veritas so far. I apologize for not being clear uh, regarding that. But if, if you were wondering how you might uh, give uh, at, at Veritas, if you call Veritas home and, and you're looking for a way to give, uh, there are several ways that you can do that. You can, you can either do that online uh, on our website. You can do that through mail. Or you can do that here at our Sunday gatherings by, by dropping in cash or check uh, in um, uh, the bucket here in, in the black box on the table. Uh, and if you want any more information regarding that, just go to veritasdayton.org slash give. Uh, and that's where you can find out information about online giving and giving by mail. Uh, so we are going to be in the sixth commandment this morning. It's Exodus twenty thirteen. Exodus twenty thirteen. And this is a very lengthy text, so I apologize for asking you to stand for such a, such, such a lengthy reading. But if you would stand with me for, uh, out of honor and respect for God's word as we read this, and let's listen with reverence and awe this morning. The sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this commandment, and uh, we ask that you, would, uh, that you would skillfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts this morning. Would you convict us? Um, would you call us to something? Would you comfort us with the, the good news that Jesus has fulfilled this perfectly and shown us how to obey this? Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you help us to receive from you? In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So out of all the Ten Commandments, this is probably uh, the, the one that everyone agrees with and they, thinks they, they, they think that they have this one down. Uh, out of all of them, this is probably the only one that people feel that way about. The first commandment, uh, there's just a lot of confusion regarding the, the other nine, I think, often. The first commandment often in our culture feels like a straitjacket. It's kind of exclusive. Uh, the, the fourth commandment, to keep the Sabbath day holy, you know, often uh, people just wonder, why should I take a, a, 
uh, a day off work every week. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That seems a little outdated. We're not going to follow that one. Uh, but the sixth commandment, don't murder. Uh, that's, that's, that one's easy. That one is not too hard to keep. Everyone agrees about that one, and, and every decent person would agree. And I wish that we could say that that was true this morning. But I think uh, Pope John Paul II actually hit the nail on the head when he referred to our culture, uh, I quote, as a, as a culture of death. We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture where death is everywhere. There's murder, there's, there's violence, there's hatred. It's in the movies we watch, the video games that we play. Uh, and we're so desensitized to it that we don't even think twice about uh, it often. In fact, the American Psychological Association states that by the time a child finishes grade school, they will have seen about 100,000 acts of on-screen violence and over 8,000 murders depicted on television. And, it's, and that's not all, really. It's, it's on the news every single night. And for some of us, it's, it's right up the street or maybe across the street. It's, it's not far from us. Last year, there were 29 uh, known total homicides in the city of Dayton and over 15,000 nationwide in, in, in the U.S., it happens in schools, in movie theaters, and in homes often. We're involved with seemingly in, endless conflict overseas where lives are constantly lost. There are far too many unarmed young black men being killed by police. Uh, there are, listen to this, there are over 3,000 babies aborted in the United States every day. We live in a culture of death where life is treated far too cheaply. Now, don't hear me saying that the sky is falling. That's not what I'm saying. It's always been this way in measure. Uh, ever since we, we look back to the scriptures, Genesis 3 and 4, we see the fall of man in Genesis 3, and then immediately after the fall of man in Genesis 4, we see the first recorded murder in scripture, Cain murdering his brother Abel out of hatred and contempt and jealousy in his heart. And while we're seeing some things get better in our culture, I, I think, you know, there's more equality regarding race and, and gender, in, increasingly more and more equality regarding race and gender, so on and so forth. But some things haven't changed. Some things are not getting better. In fact, they're getting worse. Not everything is getting better. We're still the same people that we were back in Genesis 3 and 4. And often now, with just the greater capacity to kill, we, we seem to get better and more efficient at killing every century. We live in a culture of death. Life is treated far too cheaply. But as we come to this commandment, I think that we would do well not to just point the finger out at our culture, but to realize that this is a problem with us as well. This is a problem not just out there, but a problem deep within our own hearts. And if you don't believe that, you are deceived. Each of us have broken this commandment. Each of us struggle with this commandment. And God offers us in the sixth commandment a better way. And that's what we're going to dig into this morning. Seeing that God greatly treasures his image bearers and he requires that we do the same. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's walk through the outline of what God treasures, what God forbids, and what God requires. What God treasures, what God forbids, and what God requires. Now, this is a pretty straightforward commandment. 
Uh, you, you shall not murder. Uh, or a more literal translation, it's literally two, uh, two words in, in, the, in the original language. It's just don't murder or no murder. And so when we come to this commandment, you simply have to ask the question, why? Why should we not murder? Why, why are we commanded to not murder? There's not a reason or a warning or a promise or anything else attached to this commandment like there are with some of the others. So what's the reason? And I think asking that question takes us back to Genesis 1, to the foundation of why this command was given. Before Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity into sin and death, before Genesis 4 where we see the first murder, we see in Genesis 1 that humanity is made in God's image, both male and female made in God's image. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the implications of that in ancient Near East culture were radical. Uh, they, they received this text in a time and place where only kings and, and princes and rulers were said to be in the image of God. They, they, they lived in a time and place where only the wealthy, the, the powerful, those who sat on thrones and wore crowns on their heads were said to be the very image of the gods, ruling the nations on the behalf of gods. And then in Genesis 1, Yahweh says, no, all humanity is made in my image. They're called to rule over and steward creation on my behalf. All are created with value and worth, not just the wealthy and powerful kings, because all are created in my image. The rich and the poor, male and female, uh, Jew and Gentile, elderly and infant, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, all are created in God's image and in his likeness. Out of all the things that God created, this one is different. This one is special. This one is treasured by God. This one is made in his image. I kind of think of it like uh, humanity is God's magnum opus. Uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the term, a magnum opus is like a large piece of literature or, or art or, or music. And, and it's one that's regarded as like the author's most important work. And, and, and the, the work that kind of sums up their work as, as an artist. In, in all their career, and, and the work that, that kind of, it, it, you, you can think of a magnum opus, you, you think of many uh, of these throughout history, like some recent ones would be like J.K. Rawlings, uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, um, even though we don't read that because we're Christians, uh, or like J.R.R.R. Tolkien's uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that's his magnum opus, or, or you might think of um, like uh, the Mona Lisa, which is Leonardo da Vinci's uh, magnum opus, or, or in the realm of music, you might think of Nirvana's Nevermind, or, or you might think of the White Album by the Beatles, or you might think of The Chronic by Dr. Dre. That's what comes to mind when I think magnum opus. Uh, but that's kind of a, a crass illustration just to, to, to say that, that this is how God sees humanity. This is what humanity is like to God. 
You can think of God as sort of a divine artist. He's, he's creative beyond our comprehension. He's, he's created the universe, which is his like art gallery, and he's just filling it with beauty and, and uh, wonderful, uh, wise, brilliant design. And, and, he's, and he's filling it with gorgeous works that, that attest to his glory and his goodness. And then on the sixth day of the creation narrative, he creates us. And he says, out of all the things that I've created, this is my magnum opus. This one is made in my image. It has much worth and and value because it images me. It shows forth my image in creation and stewards the rest of creation on my behalf. God treasures humanity. God treasures his image bearers. And this is why Christians throughout history have typically been pro-life. Some only advocating for the taking of life uh, when, when absolutely necessary in defense of the innocent and the vulnerable. Because we see human life as valuable. We see human life as having worth because it's, it's God who created us and he made us in his image. He alone has authority over life and death because he's the giver of life. And so he's the, the only one that has the right to take it away. And so he grants it only in some circumstances. He's, he's, he's the one who created us, and he did so in his image. And yes, our, our, we are sinful. We are a broken image. We are marred by sin, but we are his image nonetheless. And what happens when we undermine or ignore this is that human life is seen as having less and less value. If God did not create each and every single individual in his image. If there's no God above us who created us with this extrinsic and intrinsic value, then we have no real reason to keep this commandment. In fact, one American medical professor uh, named Malcolm Potts is, is recording as having said this, illustrating this point. He says, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. Once this religious mumbo-jumbo has been stripped away, we may continue to see normal members of our species as possessing greater capacities of rationality, self-consciousness, communication, etc., than members of other species. But we will not regard, listen to this, as sacrosanct the life of each and every member of our species. That, that is a horrifying statement. On, on the one hand, it's a horrifying statement, but on the other hand, it's not surprising in the least because that is the type of conclusion that you will arrive to if your worldview is the same. That's, that's the exact ideology that results in things like legal abortion and infanticide and euthanasia and assisted suicide and all violations of the sixth commandment. But God says to his people, Not so among you. I've created you in all in my image. And that includes the young and the weak and the helpless. That includes the elderly and the infirm and the diseased and the disabled. That that little Down syndrome boy or girl who society calls a problem has great dignity and worth and value because they're made in the image of our creator and redeemer. And so our value, our worth, our, 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 they're not measured in the gifts that we possess or, or what we bring to the table or the benefits we bring to society or our wealth or power or abilities or anything else. Our value is measured by who God says that we are. 
And God says that every human being is treasured because they're made in his image. And so it's for this reason that God forbids unjust killing. What God forbids in this commandment is unjust killing. Uh, Now, there have been a couple of different translations of this commandment in, in the different English translations of the Bible The reason being, we don't have an exact word uh, in the English language that lines up with this Hebrew word. The KJV translates this commandment, you shall not kill. And often more modern translations typically say you shall not murder, uh, which is probably a good move. Because the word used here uh, in this command is is more narrow than the word kill, but it's it's definitely more broad than the word murder as well. There are about uh, eight words in the Hebrew language used for the taking of life. And something to note about this one is that it's never used when speaking about defending the weak or the innocent or in just war or in in reference to capital punishment or or hunting for food. Those forms of killing wouldn't be included within this commandment, hence why the word kill is probably not the best translation for this command, and the word murder is probably more appropriate. But it's no doubt that murder is forbidden within this commandment in this particular command. That includes the premeditated taking of a life. That includes the deliberate killing of an enemy. It includes uh, the taking of another life in in a moment of passion or anger. It it includes unjust killing and unjust wars. It, it, It includes genocide, abortion, infanticide, and many other forms of murder. It includes all of that. When we do that as human beings, we are claiming a right over humanity that only God has. We're stealing what belongs to God. And, and not just murder, but all forms of violence are, are, are uh, included in this command apart from the defense of the weak and innocent. Assault, physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, and, and all, all other forms of violence like that are forbidden in this commandment. But this commandment is, is not just forbidding the act of murder and, and acts of violence. Uh, the word used here for that, that we translated murder, the, the word used here is also includes uh, allowing someone to be killed by our negligence and carelessness. So an example of this is given in Deuteronomy 19.5. A, a situation is, is described where uh, it says, A man and his neighbor go into the forest to cut wood, and his hand swings an axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. And so that's not on purpose, that's not on purpose, but there's a level of carelessness or negligence in his not ensuring that the head of the axe was firmly attached to the handle. Or we see another example of this in Deuteronomy 22.8. The Israelites are given this command. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for the roof. It's like a, a barricade. That you may not bring the, the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So that's how serious this command was to, to be taken. That's how seriously they, they saw the value of human life is that the people of Israel were to be so committed to the preservation, the flourishing of life, and they were to treasure human life so much that the construction of their houses were to be taken into account here. And a good example of, of, uh, of a way that we follow this today is, is maybe you, you order your house in such a way, if you have little ones, you order your house in such a way as to to keep them safe. You you put sharp tools and kitchen knives out of their reach. You put those little plastic plugs into the wall so that they don't shock themselves. 
But then it also extends out through our homes and into the streets. We, we don't drink or drive because of this command. We, we don't drive recklessly or text and drive because of this command because we, we're so committed to the flourishing of human life and, and the preservation of human life. And, and it, it should really, it should extend into everything. The way we drive, the way we interact with our neighbors, the way we work, the way we engage in the public square, all take into account this particular commandment. We're called to not put others at risk through our negligence and carelessness. So we're called to refrain from murder and all forms of unjust violence, and we're called in everything to not be negligent or careless with human life. But then Jesus really gets to the heart of this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He shows us that murder is not just a matter of external actions, but really an internal reality. It's a matter of the heart. He says in Matthew 5, beginning with verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And then the Apostle John picks up uh, on this theme in his letter in, in 1 John 3.15, where he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So no one likes to think of themselves as murderous or violent Everyone likes to think of themselves as being pro-life and, and non-violent and, and peaceable. But I want to suggest to you this morning that if you've ever been unjustly angry with your neighbor, if, you, if you've ever been guilty of such hatred in your heart, harboring such hatred in your heart, if you've ever nursed resentment in your heart, if you've ever, uh, from the posture of, of your heart, if that's ever led you to insult or verbally abuse others, you're guilty of breaking this commandment. You're guilty of breaking this commandment. As John Calvin said, the hand indeed gives birth to murder, but the mind, when infected with anger and hatred, conceives it. So if we come to a place of such anger and hatred, sometimes, sometimes the only thing that stands between us and murder is lack of opportunity or fear of consequence. I'm convinced of that. And honestly, I'm also convinced that with the election just a few days away, that some people in here, some of us in here need to repent of this. Some of us have been so passionate, so, so filled with hatred for those that were voting differently or not at all. And, and not just for those who are voting differently. Some of us are so filled with anger and hatred for the candidates themselves. They're made in the image of God. You're, you're called to honor them because they're made in the image of our creator and redeemer. They have intrinsic and extrinsic worth and value. I know we, we, we're passionate. We're, we're, we have convictions uh, about these sorts of things, but you, you must be careful. You must be watchful of your own heart to make sure that you are not slipping into anger and hatred for others who sit across the political aisle from you. I'm, I'm convinced that some of us in here need to repent of that. When we do engage in, in the political sphere, in the public square, we're called to do so out of love for our neighbor, and that includes those who sit across the aisle from you. And so we're called we're called to, to flee from unrighteous, unjust anger and, and hatred. They're forbidden in this commandment, just as much as murder and violence are. 
Because it's in the heart that those things are conceived. It's, it's in the heart where they begin. But in this commandment, we not only find what God forbids, we also find what he requires of us. So we've addressed the negative side of the command, but then there's, there's also on the, on the flip side, there's a positive side of the command and what he requires. Now, we haven't talked about this explicitly, although we've touched on it briefly, uh, but one of the rules, one of the rules of interpretation when we're reading the Ten Commandments is something called the negative positive rule. Uh, for, for every command that's, that's put negatively, the, the you shall nots, which there's a lot of those, there's only one command that's fully uh, put in the positive form uh, in the Ten Commandments, but the rest of them, they're, they're put in negative form, you shall not. Uh, but there's also, for each one of those, there's a negative side, but there's a positive side as well, a requirement for each one of them. Each commandment uh, put negatively, which most of them are, they condemn a particular sin, but they also command a particular virtue. And so we followed this rule and we looked at the third commandment, uh, you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so we looked at how, how we weren't supposed to do that, but then also we looked at it positively as well. So what, what does that tell us about uh, the Lord's name and how we're to use it? If we're not to take it in vain, we're to lift it up for his glory, uh, for it to be hallowed and, and, and for his fame to increase in the earth. Um, so that's, that's the, the kind of negative positive rule in the third commandment. And then also in the, in the first commandment, we're told to not worship uh, any other gods, uh, but that also means that we're to, to worship the one true God. And the same is true of this commandment. It's put in the negative form, you shall not murder. And we asked the question why in the first point, and of course we looked at how God treasures human life, that he alone has authority to take it because he's the one that gives it in the first place, and that every person made in the image of God has intrinsic and extrinsic worth and dignity and value. And so then, how are we to live if that's the case? If human life is valuable, what are we called to? In this commandment, we're, we're not just called to, to take on a sort of live and let live mindset. We're not to take a, a, a sort of hands-off approach to the lives of others. The Apostle John is, is actually getting at this in, in 1 John 3, following the text we just read a few moments ago. He tells us in verse 15, we just read that, that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So that's the negative side of the command. But then he also follows in verse 16, telling us the positive side of the command. He says, by this we know love... That he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see, we follow our, our God and Savior Jesus who is so committed to life that he would come and take on our humanity and be murdered so that we would have life eternally and abundantly. We, we, we follow Jesus who laid down his life so that we could have life eternally. And as he is the author of all of life, he subjected himself to the hatred, the violence, the murderous vengeance of men to give them life. Therefore, what kind of people are we called to be here? The kind of people that pursue the same. We're called to be a people that to the greatest degree that our ability and, and energy allows to pr that pursue the preservation and the flourishing of lives, of the lives of others. We're, we're called to pursue the flourishing of life in our homes, in our church, in our city, 
in, in a culture of death, we are to be a people of life. In a culture where 3,000 babies are aborted every single day, we're called to defend the, and shelter the weak and the innocent. In, in, a, in a culture where the vulnerable and the weak and the diseased and the elderly are seen as problems to be rid of, we're, we're called to visit widows and orphans in their distress, as James 1.27 tells us. John Calvin says of the sixth commandment that, that we are accordingly commanded if we find anything of use in saving our neighbor's lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for their peace, to see to it. If anything harmful, to ward it off. If they're in any danger, to lend a helping hand. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is God calling us to in order to obey this, in order to obey this command? We're not just called to be against certain things in this command, but to faithfully pursue action. We're not just called to be against abortion, but maybe, maybe this morning God is calling some of us here to give ourselves to work, works of adoption and, and, and fostering children. We're not just called to be against the oppression of the poor, but we're called to be people who build relationships across socioeconomic lines and, and, and really identify with the weak and the poor and the oppressed as the people of God. And we're not just called to be against racism, but to, but to build relationships with those of other cultures and ethnicities. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 35, we're called to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, welcome the refugee and the immigrant, clothe the naked, visit the sick and imprisoned. And probably most importantly, not probably, most importantly, we are not called to keep the gospel, the message of life to ourselves. We are called to tell our neighbors, to tell others that they're made for communion with our triune God and that Jesus has purchased us for that. We're called to, to, to tell this because while we were weak and, and helpless and wallowing in death, Jesus stepped in and rescued us from death. While we were still murderers, he died for us, purchasing our life. And then he rose again in power to share it with us. Let's honor him as, as people, as his people, by, by treasuring what he so treasures, by avoiding what he forbids, and by pursuing what he requires. That's what we're called to. We're called to be the people of life in a culture of death. My prayer is that the Spirit would empower us for that in our home's church and city. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives life and life abundantly. And Lord, we just, um, we confess that we have far too often contributed to the culture of death that we live in. We thank you that, that you sent Jesus, who is the author of life, and, and, and that he's rescued us for life abundantly and eternally. And so, Lord, we, we just ask this morning that you would help us uh, to be people who reflect him back well into our culture, that we would be a people of life in a culture of death. Lord, would you help us to be a people who, who, not, only, um, who not only don't do any harm to our neighbors, but work for their flourishing, their good, for the preservation of life in our city. 
Lord, and, and uh, we know that that starts in our hearts um, before it, it starts anywhere else. And so would you transform us? Would you sanctify us in your truth, Lord? Would you incline our hearts toward this commandment and, and uh, toward Christ and, and uh, for his glory? Or we're dependent upon you. We can do nothing apart from you. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.